0: The daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 8th, 2023, a Thursday. We began this morning up in the clouds with Mark uh, Van Honecker, who uh, is a British Airways pilot. Uh, he's written a book, Imagine a City, a love letter from the sky to the world's greatest cities. Uh, sitting in his cockpit, uh, Mark imagines his city and he sees the world in all its beauty and complexity and color. Um, we are though bringing the plane down to earth now, uh, with my guest, uh who has an entirely different kind of story from uh, Van Honecker. Uh, Martha Hodes uh, was a 12-year-old girl on a flight in 1970, which got hijacked. um, And uh, she's just written a kind of memoir, although in an odd way, it's a memoir of forgetting. My hijacking, a personal history of forgetting and remembering, as it happens, and appropriately enough, she is a historian. She's in the business of remembering, and she is joining us from New York City today. Martha, um, welcome. The book is getting a lot of visibility. It, it's rather ironic for a history, uh, for a historian like yourself. Your your day job is at uh, NYU as a historian, uh, a professor. It's rather ironic to be writing a book, a memoir about forgetting, isn't it?
1: I actually love that phrase, Andrew, a memoir of forgetting. That's absolutely wonderful. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, in a way, the book, although it's about a particular world historical event that I deeply researched, it's also a book about trauma and forgetting, a kind of experience that many people have in their own lives or their own childhoods. And so, in a way, I call it a personal history, um, personal experiences in historical context. And uh, bringing my skills as a professional historian to reconstruct what I did remember, but also everything that I did not remember, all that I had forgotten, all that I had forgotten. And to do that, I did deep archival research, and I talked to many people who were involved in different ways, and I listened to broadcasts, and I listened to, uh, I read the newspapers that came out at the time. I tried to read what, say, my parents had read every day, my mother, the Jerusalem Post in Israel, my father, the New York Times. I listened to all the nightly newscasts that he heard in New York City while we were held hostage for a week in the Jordan Desert. So it's a a real mix of history and memoir. And it's also a way to reconstruct an experience that I had in many ways forgotten.
0: It's it's a reconstruction of 1970, which I think uh, is, is was a fascinating year, as all, I guess, previous years were. You note that you're in the business of trying to remember it, but as a historian, you said you looked at your father's diary. One of the astonishing things about your father's diary was it was blank for the, for the days when you and your young sister, the ultimate, of course, parental nightmare, their two young daughters traveling from Israel back to the U.S., Would have been, um, would have been kidnapped. Um, did Martha did did this experience of researching this period that your father chose also in an odd way to forget? Did it teach you as a historian of the value of the blank page? Is that the most revealing thing of all?
1: Well, first, I should say, thank you so much for bringing up my father's diary. That did not get into the book because my father. Died just as the book was going to print, and so I wrote an article about it online for Lit Hub. What happened was after this. Show my- also
0: goes out on, so uh, many of the viewers and listeners will be already familiar That's with funny. the the lovely piece you just wrote for uh, Lit Hub. Why didn't I want my beloved father to read my memoir?
1: Yes, yeah, so those readers and listeners will know that I found my father's daybook from 1970 after he died and after the book had gone to press. And as you referred to, Andrew, um, he made no indication in his daybook of any reference to the hijacking. There was a notation to pick my sister and me up from the airport the day we were supposed to get back, and nothing to indicate. That we'd been hijacked, or even that he was going to the airport to pick us up eight days later, or however many days it was. Um, and so I, I reflect on that in the LitHub article that in a way, my father really did want his daughters to forget what had happened to us. It was very important to him that we not think about it. And in a way that was the, that was the wisdom at the time. Move on with your life. Don't dwell on these kinds of traumatic experiences. But what I didn't realize and what I found out in looking at the day book was, in a way it, it, it spelled out to me what was possibly his own trauma because my stepmother had spoken to me and told me that she called him and described him as, quote, a man on another planet and also as frozen. And his not writing in the daybook, not just for the week we were gone, but, but really for weeks and weeks afterwards in a day book otherwise filled with his very lively daily life, as a dancer and choreographer indicated to me that he might have been traumatized and frozen in a way that I hadn't realized before.
0: Yeah. This is of course a, a nonfiction book, a defiantly nonfiction book, but it would also make an appropriate novel. Uh, the, the idea of frozenness of a Jew living in New York. I'm not sure why he was frozen. I'm not sure if he had any experiences of the Holocaust. this, this, sort of juxtaposition, I guess, implicitly or otherwise in your work and in your memoir of either forgetting or over remembering. Martha, Mm. what what did this experience teach you about this weird uh, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know what the word would be, congruence or uh, symbiosis between forgetting everything and remembering too much?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's such a, that's such a wonderful question. Um, one of the things I realized, you know, I knew that I, I was an absolutely avid diary keeper as a child. I had been keeping a diary since I was 10 years old. And I knew when I started thinking about writing this book that I had a diary that I had kept that year, that summer, and I had it with me on the plane. And I knew that I had written every day on the plane. And I thought, great, this will be my trusted scaffolding and I will write the story around this. Well, what I found out was that my diary was a a pretty inadequate source because, and I think this gets partly to your question about forgetting, I wrote every day. I wrote a few things that were difficult, like we're running out of bread, oh dear, we don't have enough to eat. But there was so much I omitted I omitted my fear, I omitted frightening moments, I omitted frightening scenes that I could never actually get out of my head but didn't wanna preserve. And so what I realized, and partly as a historian, I realized I was not able to absorb everything that was going on around me, but I also was determined in many ways to forget everything going on around me. I was very concerned for my father. I was very worried that he would be worried that we were afraid. And so I, what I did was I, not that my father would ever read my diary, but I crafted a narrative for myself that I could live with the same way my father crafted a narrative that he could live with. And his narrative, by the way, was, as he told me endlessly when I talked to him about writing the book, I always knew you were coming back, which according to my stepmother was not true, but it's the story he told himself and needed to believe. So, you know, one of the things I learned as a historian, and of course, I knew this by researching other people's lives, but I had never had such a direct experience of direct documents being so unreliable. And I'll just say one thing more about that, which is, you know, historians prize documents from the time and place we're writing about. That diary was with me in my hands on the plane in the desert, and yet it was so incomplete in so many ways, even if it told me other very important things about how I experienced the hijacking.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing, Martha, that novelists would be thrilled to hear this because they would argue that they can tell historical truths much more accurately because the important stuff doesn't get written down or it gets forgotten or ignored. What about the role of tranquilizers? I know in your story you suggest that one reason in addition to the emotional aspects one reason you 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 you've forgotten everything was the fact that the Red Cross was giving out tranquilizers to all the the kids, so all the people on the plane.
1: That's right. So absolutely right. One of the things I ask in the memoir is why did I remember so little? Now there are, there are all kinds of answers. You know, it was a long time ago. It was almost fifty years ago when I started to write the book. I was a child. Memory blocks trauma, and all of those are true. But I did discover, and it was something I had not remembered, that both the International Red Cross doctors and the Red Crescent Palestinian doctor were freely dispensing tranquilizers, which in a way is is a sign of 1970. Um, It was an age when many people took tranquilizers, anti-anxiety medication. There wasn't a lot of research. I did a lot of reading on this medication. I wasn't able to pinpoint exactly what we were handed out, but Probably something like Valium. And it was amazing to me after I did all of this reading and came across the information, by the way, documented that my sister and I had taken some of these pills. I thought it was amazing. I remembered as much as I did because obviously we were not conscious for certain. I mean, it may have just been, even if it was just at night, you know, a lot of things happened on the plane at night. People were brought up to the front uh, of the plane where the where the commandos had set up a kind of a headquarters and were interrogated and questioned and then would would walk back down the aisle quite upset. I completely missed that. I had no idea that was happening. Now, I may have blocked it out, but it may also have been, we were on drugs.
0: We're all on drugs all the time, one way or the other, Martha. Um, let's go back to 1970. Uh, one of my favorite shows last year was with my old friend, Professor political economy at Cambridge University, uh, Helen Thompson. She's written a prize-winning book on the 70s called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, in which she goes back to the 70s and suggests that much of that decade was is now being repeated. In your research, as you began to rebuild your memory, if you like, for this experience, what did you learn that surprised mm-hmm. you that perhaps we've all collectively chosen... Forget about the 1970s uh, and particularly this issue of Israel and the liberation of Palestine. You note know that 9-11 triggered a lot of stuff, but 9 uh, The PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, who carried out this hijacking, uh, that there could be no more... Vivid contrast, I guess, in the history of terrorism between the, the PFLP of their idealistic young leftist terrorists and the, the Al Qaeda people of 9
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, the 70s context was so interesting because I was, I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. And so, just everything from, you know, obviously, you know, I learned from my own diaries that I began to protest against the Vietnam War right around that time. Um, you know everything from the campaigns against littering, you know, which which we sang ditties about from the television commercials, to you know Earth Day, and all the context was so fascinating to me. But in terms of the direct relationship to the hijacking, you know, I so two things. Like like many American Jews in 1967, I had no idea that Palestinians had once lived on the land. Um, that we call Israel that I went and visited my mother who had lived there. Well, you before.
0: were a nine-year-old girl, so there was no real reason why correct. you correct. No. no, exactly.
1: Um but the point is, and I I did a lot of reading, a lot of memoirs by American Jews, even by people who had moved to Israel as children. And we were, we were not alone. Um, it was it was very common that you know people now looking back will say, I had no idea. We never talked about this. No grown-ups ever told me this. One of the things that I began to learn on the plane that resonates into the modern day was this sense of of irreconcilable narratives from both sides. And that was something I knew nothing about. I should also say that my sister and I grew up in a very secular household. We never went to Hebrew school. So we didn't have a narrative that we arrived with. We were in Israel because my mother was a modern dancer. And she was helping to start the Bethsheba Dance Company. And she did not go to Israel as a Zionist or, or even as a Jew. She perhaps, in, in a way, perhaps. that's
0: an even more troubling narrative, Martha, in the sense that she chose to go to Israel. She was free to go to Israel. She wasn't even a Zionist, but she was going to a place that, in many people's eyes, is someone else's land.
1: Well, she had grown, I mean, she, her parents were Jewish and she was Jewish. And I think she, you know, she felt she felt an affinity with with the beauty of Israel, the beaches, and the you know it was it was a it was a place that that when she went there on tour with the Martha Graham Dance Company, she felt that she would return to someday, and and she did. As a matter of fact, I will just say one other thing that that really struck me when I was looking through family letters, which I did quite a bit um, to write this book, and I found a letter that my sister had written home to her father. We had taken a trip with my mother and Israeli stepfather to the village of Ein Had. And my sister had written this letter where she said um, her quote was something like painters and sculptors live there in quaint little Arab style houses everywhere are beautiful mountains and flowers. And what we didn't know was that in 1948, the Palestinians who lived there had been exiled to refugee camps, and it had been settled by Israeli artists. And so to us, it was this beautiful little artist's colony. And she even used the word Arab-style houses, but we had no idea what the history was. And that was very uh, uh,
0: I take your point. Uh, I grew up in a similar time to you, but you could have known, not you personally, but your parents. There were books. There were narratives. There was indeed... Movements like the PFLP that were reminding people of what actually happened, and the Jewish aspect to this uh, and the Israel aspect is is so interesting it's so multi-layered
1: mm-hmm.
0: in, in, in a couple of ways. One of the things that occurred to me when I was thinking about your story was that after the Holocaust, Jews in a way chose to forget it. And now perhaps they're over-remembering it. A week doesn't go by when I don't have some sort of Holocaust memoir or something on the show. Um, What did this book teach you about Israel and the memories and all this stuff that's so complicated and controversial?
1: I mean, it taught me just that, how incredibly complicated and controversial it is. And you know, scholars disagree on whether Jews forgot, wanted to forget the Holocaust right after it happened. There are different schools of thought. Some say they did, and others say not at all, and have brought evidence to bear on that. Um, I mean, what I also found so interesting, just to continue what I was saying before, is that, you know, none of none of the Israeli kids we played with had anything to tell us about a different kind of history about, about Palestinians on the land, as if they didn't know either, uh, along with American kids, American Jewish kids. So, You know, the complexity and I will say the book is in many ways, you know, it's it's a child's story. So I'm not weighing in necessarily on current day politics. But one of the things that um, one of the things I realized on the plane was that there were some Holocaust survivors on the plane and they were very triggered by what was happening, even though the Holocaust was a Christian European destruction, obviously. Um, that the Palestinians were not involved in, but they were, they were triggered by the experience and felt very fearful. And at the same time, we learned that our captors, the commandos, some of them had been children during the 1948 war and they had been exiled from their homes. So as a 12 year old and my sister was 13, you know, I have a line in the book where I say, we just felt sorry for everyone. And it's like, we wanted to think of a way to make everybody get along and we we couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. And that felt very sad to us. I remember feeling sad about that and feeling sorry for my fellow hostages and for some of the captors who were nice to us.
0: What about the point of the the narrative of terrorism? I'm not suggesting that al-Qaeda was an outgrowth of the Palestinian movement, but there's certainly been a profound change in the nature of terrorism between the kinds of terrorists who... um, who hijacked your plane. I guess they're terrorists. I mean, that's a tricky word as well. The, the, the terrorists, the hijackers of your plane in 1970 who didn't blow it up, who didn't murder everyone, who let everyone off. And the the Al-Qaeda uh, terrorists and uh, 9-11 who flew their planes into buildings.
1: Yeah. And this also brings me back to your previous question, which I didn't quite answer about 9-11. So the first thing to say is that Although when 9-11 happened, my sister and I both felt um, and just use this word colloquially, not medically, we both felt triggered. It's also very important, I think, for people to understand that there isn't a straight line between our hijacking by the PFLP and 9-11. So I just want to make clear and you you, you mentioned this um, in a way that the members of the PFLP were Marxist, Leninists, they were not Muslim jihadists. Their ideal, what they believed in, was a secular, pluralistic, democratic state for Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Um, They were uh, also against imperialism. They were pro what they would call modernization and what at the time would would be called women's lib. Um, Most of their leaders were from the intellectual class.
0: They're the kind of kids who study history at NYU. (laughs) You
1: could say that. Um, and, you know, they recruited members from the refugee camps, but the question so that so they're, they're um they had more rank and file leader uh, members, but the leadership was from a particular intellectual class. You know, the question of the word terrorism is really interesting. Um, experts disagree on that word. Historians puzzle out that word. I was interested to find that in 1970, the mainstream press, by which I mean, you know, the papers I read in my research, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, they didn't consistently use that word. They called our captors commandos. Um, and I think the word was undergoing a, a shift right around the 1970s. You know, That was a time where people called terrorists could be considered not only non-state, but also state, state-based actors with a political cause rather than a kind of irrational, savage kind of personality. And of course, after 9-11, uh, terrorism came to be associated with, in a larger sense, the Middle East. And now I think you know, there's more of a sense of incorporating white supremacists uh, into that definition, but it's a, it's a very complex word and a word with a history, not just a word to be thrown around.
0: We can't only though hi i mean all this stuff is incredibly complex martha but that doesn't mean we can't make calls on it we had um anthony Lowenstein, one of israel's i think uh, most articulate critics on the show recently has a new book out the palestine laboratory how israel exports the technology of occupation around the world i'm not sure i agree with everything that anthony argues but he he makes some important points You've grown up obviously since being that uh 12-year-old girl hijacked and innocent on the plane you know a lot more about stuff now what did the research in the book and the thinking about this book teach you about and and correct me if I'm articulating this in the wrong way the the jewish people both israel and non non-israeli jews their responsibility to remember that Israel is was not a place that was uh, uh you know a land without people for a people without land that we that we that we collectively need to remember what actually happened
1: yeah i mean i'm I'm not here and to settle the issue, nor does my book do so no I
0: wish you could if you were I wouldn't unfortunately no one can settle it that's the problem
1: yeah I mean. You know, again, this the irreconcilable narratives, one of the things I learned was that each side tells completely different histories. And as a historian, that was absolutely fascinating to me. As someone who was... But that's right to, to
0: interrupt, Martha. Please. That doesn't... Just because people tell different narratives, it doesn't legitimize each narrative, does it?
1: Correct. That's right. Although, you're absolutely right. But, you know, what's very important to me, I, I teach a course... Um, at NYU called Autobiography and History in which the students read scholars and historians placing their own lives in historical context. And not only in that class, but in every class I teach, I tell my students to ask this question, why did this person tell this story this way? And that was a question I had to ask, certainly of myself, my father, my sister with her experiences but also with this issue of people telling completely different histories you're absolutely right i also tell my students that doesn't mean that all of those stories have equal weight and you know there has to be evidence and it has to be backed up but it also matters the stories that people tell and why they tell them and i hope that i was able in writing the book to to come to some sort of empathy for both sides. And that's something that neither side necessarily wants to hear. In other words, I'm advocating for listening to your enemies and for a kind of empathy. But the issue of Israel Palestine, as you know, from the interviews you've done, um, often the questions people ask demand kind of binary answers, you know, you're on my side, or you're a self-hating Jew, you're on my side, or you're a violator of human rights. And I don't believe that that's productive. Again, not that I have the answer, but that hasn't changed anybody's minds. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe activism has, it has, it has changed people's minds, but it's so, um, it's so fraught and so complicated. And I, the other thing I'll say as a historian is, you know, we thrive on complexity and that is so, so important. Complexity is so important in order to understand, you know, which narrative, you're you're going to embrace i mean i teach this american civil war you know we But i we want to come to america and it's community. funny the more
0: you talk martha the more it seems as if the profession of history and the per- profession of therapy are beginning to blur they're coming together um speaking of therapy one of the things that really resonated when i think about your story in terms of how 1970 was different is after you add your as you say my my hijacking in a few days in the desert you sat on a plane six nights and six days again a lot of thematic complexity to that one you came back no debriefing no therapy you went back to school uh you never talked to your parents about it you never talked about it i mean can you imagine today there would be teams of therapists on the runway. These right. kids would go into therapy for years. What has changed? Why uh, uh, Why was there an absence of therapy? And again, it comes back to forgetting and, and remembering. Too much forgetting, too much remembering. Why was there no therapy then? And why is everything now uh, <laughs> therapeutic? I mean, there are people who say, oh, I lived through 9-11 and they weren't even in New York or Washington, D.C. They just watched it on television. So I, I don't know that I can answer the question of
1: the history of the, of the psychologist, profession of psychiatry, but I will say- Well, you're a
0: historian, um, and as I said, therapy and history now are one and the same. Yes. I'm teasing, that there is some truth to that, I think.
1: Yeah, what I did discover, which was very interesting to me and I didn't know, was that what we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, was not named until 1980 in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the Bible of Psychiatry. Now, um, it doesn't mean that didn't exist. You know, people would talk about, say, shell shock for soldiers who came back from war, but PTSD did not become named until 1980. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. And I realized my sister and I probably would have been diagnosed with something called uh, acute stress disorder, which is um, a more limited version of PTSD. In other words, it doesn't affect your whole life. It only lasts for a short time. You know, in some ways, I I am amazed that not only was there no therapy for us and, of course, my friends, my very best friend, you know, the teachers. My father had gone to my school and told the principal I was on a hijacked plane. The principal didn't <laughs> apparently even tell the teachers. And so the first day of seventh grade, my very best friend, every time my name was called on the attendance roster, she had to raise her hand and say, Martha's on one of those hijacked planes. She didn't know if I was coming back.
0: And that That's really brilliant. you got to make a movie of this, Martha. That that would be a perfect sign. And I assume when you came back, someone got you a T-shirt. I went to Israel and and all I got was my hijacking.
1: Not in 1970. Um, but you know so in that sense yes there should have been some sort of outreach to me and to my friends and yet you know I was not the only child on the plane whose parents thought it best not to talk about it. It wasn't true of all the families. Some families yeah, didn't. Yeah.
0: We, did, we didn't talk enough back then and now of course I think we probably talk too much. You you mentioned that you're a, your day job is as a historian of American history mm-hmm. and particularly of the Civil War. We've done lots of shows on the dangers of misremembering our past in an American context. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Colette Brooks. Um, Mm -hmm. She has a wonderful book, Trapped in the Present Tense, Meditations on American Memory about remembering the JFK um, assassination, uh, which in in some ways fits very well with, with your work. You wrote a book, for example, White Women, Black Men, Illicit Sex in the 19th Century South. I mean, America, like Israel, Uh, it's very good at forgetting, isn't it?
1: Yes, and in fact, it's interesting you brought up, I have written three books in the past, none about myself, all about the 19th century, but all of them in some ways were about memory and taught me something about memory. So in the book you just mentioned, White Women, Black Men, my primary sources were courtroom testimony and people were remembering what had happened. Again, why did they tell the stories they told? My second book was about a white woman from New England who married a Caribbean sea captain. And in the course of writing the book, I ended up conversing with some of the descendants of the Caribbean sea captain and they had their own stories. And some of the stories they told didn't match the archival stories I had found. And my last book was about personal responses to Lincoln's assassination, warning Lincoln. And I learned very quickly that reminiscences about the assassination were not going to be as reliable as sources from the days, weeks, and months after the assassination. And so I limited my research to that time period, to the more immediate, because memories, and it's not that people are fabricating or lying, it's that we remember in ways that, that get complicated and twisted and confused. And I've talked to some of my fellow hostages who say, you know, I remember we did this, and then immediately after that, we did that. And I'll say, no, no, for my research, those were days apart, but they were two crucial or significant events. And so that person remembered them as happening at the same time or one after the other. Memory is very fickle. And I already knew that. But boy, did I learn more about that, researching my own experiences.
0: So what has that taught you about what we should and shouldn't remember about white women and black men, interracial sex, the history of slavery, everything that now is dividing America, particularly with trump and desantis uh triggering the the culture wars again what should we remember and what should we choose to forget in in an america which is perhaps as much as any other country in the world defined by what people are willing to remember and forget given the profound injustices in this country
1: I mean, in an ideal world, historians would do deep, deep research, verify the things that happened to people in the past, write books about those things that were accessible and readable, and people would read those books, this is an ideal, and absorb that knowledge. And rather than relying on passed down family stories, say about, you know, the Confederacy, or, you know, what the white South went to war for in the Civil War, you know, that the we would read the documents and understand that, you know, white Southerners went to war over slavery. They didn't go to war over states' rights. Or if it was about states' rights, it was states' rights in, in order to shore up slavery. But, you know, that's that's the job of, of good historians, and half the job is the research. And the other half is writing books that people will want to read and will be absorbed in and convinced by and, and will exhibit a kind of empathy for the reader. Those are all very tall orders.
0: It's all very tall, and I apologize for the, the background sirens, Martha. You're talking to me from New York. Final question. It's a wonderfully rich, complicated, and interesting story. You tell it wonderfully as well, Martha. I wonder whether this book also brought out a kind of nostalgia for your own innocence. You have this wonderful mm-hmm. uh, note from you and your sister to your parents. Uh, dear mm-hmm. Mom and Dad, we are both okay and looking forward to being home. Many people are watching out for us, so please don't worry. It's such a, a lovely little note from two little girls who are on a hijacked plane of all things. Did this, mm. did the, the research and the writing of this book, how did it change your view of yourself and of your childhood and that mm. innocence which you lost, particularly on that plane, uh, when, which was hijacked mm. in 1970?
1: What a, what a very interesting and original question, Andrew. Thank you. You know, when I was writing the book, I found myself so frustrated with my diary in which I had omitted so much. And so part of the process of the book was moving from that frustration, almost disappointment in myself, um, what you call innocence as a historian writing a memoir, I kept thinking of as denial and omission. But the process of writing the book, I wouldn't say nostalgia for innocence, but I would say that I came to have empathy for that 12-year-old girl who, as I like to say, both was me and wasn't me, who we are in the past isn't who we are in the present necessarily, and I, in a way, the feelings I were able to access, you know, I, I reconstructed everything that happened with such care because I was trying to understand the fear that I must have felt that I wasn't able to access. But in a way, I wouldn't say innocence of childhood. I would say, and I'll leave this as a gift to the readers to find out what I mean about this. But in a way, the sadness of my childhood was what I tapped into. And in that sense, you know, we all have sadnesses in our childhood. And in a way, the book is about things that happen to families that families don't wanna talk about. Things that happen to children that children don't understand at the time as significant. And so in that sense, I hope it's a book that anybody can read no matter, you don't have to have been on a hijacked plane or to have even experienced something as traumatic as that. As I said, we all have sadnesses and the innocence in a way was never there. That's one of the things I found out, but it was the compassion that I reached and the empathy that I reached for myself, for my fellow hostages, for my captors, um, for the other children on the plane that made me feel the book was a worthwhile endeavor for me to undertake.